If you can find a partner like a marriage, you're better off with 50% of something that makes it. You got to be careful because partnerships also, you know, have their own risks. But, you know, a small group of people, assuming they're honorable and, you know, you, you like them and you trust them, they can do a lot. Even though you're going to have a smaller part of the pie, sometimes that pie is a lot bigger because you have people, you know, like pistons, you're all pulling in the same way and, and it, you know, it tends to be, allow you to be more successful. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Greg Zigarelli. He's the owner of Technology and Entrepreneurial Ventures Law Group. Greg, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. So you've been practicing law for over 30 years, mostly in your own firm. So you've seen a lot of things because you've worked with a lot of small business owners. You've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. What are a few of the top mistakes that you see small business owners and entrepreneurs make from a legal perspective when they start their businesses or when they're first starting out? Maybe just pick a couple of them and talk about what these mistakes, common mistakes are, and then what can they do to prevent them? So... What, what I think is one of the, the most profound mistakes a new business makes is not picking or vetting out the, the, a name. So what, what tends to happen is someone thinks of a cool name and they just think because it's a cool name, they can own it. And really what happens is that just because the name is available with the state, for example, to set up a, to form a corporation or an LLC, People tend to think that means the name's available, and it doesn't mean the name's available. Uh, the states usually use what's called technical distinction, which means they only look at if a, if a name is slightly different than another name. Substantive distinction is a name that doesn't um, is not likely to confuse the public. So, for example, if you spell Krispy Kreme with a C versus a K, or Disney with a Z, you could get the domain name. The state might form the business, but you'll get sued, obviously. So what people, right at the beginning, one of the first things you do is you have to pick a name, and that's going to be your brand. And the brand is just like if you're branding a cow. Why do you brand a cow? You brand a cow because all the cows look the same, right? So what happens is you put a brand on the cow, and then that gives the ranchers the ability to say, that's my cow. So if your brand does not distinguish you somehow, it is really not fulfilling its purpose as a brand. And in fact, it may confuse the public. So that's really the most profound error because it's formative and people could go on 20 years before they get a cease and desist letter where someone's now they hit the radar and some other company says, you've got to stop using the name. Another issue related to that is sometimes people will have their accountant or a professional form the business, and those professionals will think uh, that the name is available because the state has granted the formation. Not correct. The only way to own a name to the extent you can own a name 
is it's country specific and you file with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which is, you know, somewhat expensive, uh, somewhat long procedure, but the name gets vetted. You ultimately get the little R in a circle symbol if it's granted. That's a very powerful symbol and a very powerful and, and sometimes very valuable legal right. But that's that's the first issue. Another one would be, um, and this is not intended to be self-serving, quite frankly, particularly at this stage of my career, the do-it-yourself lawyer. I've seen many situations where somebody on one side of the table says, hey, let's not make lawyers rich. We don't need lawyers. Let's just do this ourselves. And it sort of convinces the other side. The reality is, you know, if you're buying a service, particularly for lawyers, you know, when you get into contracts, when you get into doing something, some form of sophisticated deal, I understand sometimes costs are prohibitive in some way, but really, uh, you know, to, to get the professional assistance is important. And I've seen a lot of times where the people who say or dissuade getting legal advice are the people that actually are working the deal a, a bit. Um, I'm not going to say dishonest always, but they tend to be working a deal because Sophisticated people understand that legal counsel is part, and professional services, accounting, whatever, is part of the paradigm and model for how you put together transactions in a stable way. How should an entrepreneur or a small business owner go about finding the right attorney to work with? Let's say it's a new business, they're, they're just starting out, they, they have a need to work with a, a business attorney on some general business matters, or maybe even it's a, a business that's been around for a few years, but they just haven't had the need to consult with an attorney. You're on the other side of the table because you are the attorney. So what advice would you give? What tips would you give on finding the right fit, on finding the right attorney to work with? What have you seen that works in, in your practice? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and it can be a complex question because you're talking about a marriage of sorts, right? So it's it's a fundamental question. First of all, a referral is a good way to go. Obviously, you know, you talk to someone who you believe is is smart and successful in business, and ask them who their legal counsel is. The caveat to that is to make sure, or to at least get comfortable with, that that attorney's price points. Or appropriate. So in other words, if the person you ask, you know, who's your attorney and do they do a good job? And they say, yeah, and their legal counsel is a 200 person firm. For a small startup business, a 200 person firm just has an overhead structure and a process structure internally that even if they're doing you some favors and cutting you some breaks, it's just as a general rule, the, the cost model is too high. So what you want to try to find is, a, is an attorney that, number one, I can tell you sort of a side note, I do not do criminal law. I don't do personal injury law. You probably don't want to go to the guy or gal that is the criminal lawyer or the personal injury lawyer, not because they're not competent at corporate entrepreneurship. They just, there's so many, so many hours in a day. So I, I would say a referral is the best way. You can Google, consider your price points. But a referral is the best way. But you do want to have somebody that, that, for example, has worked with small business as distinguished from really large enterprises. For a small startup business, you know, a really small shop might be on the more like a one person firm, maybe more unusual. But 200 person firm tends to be too big. General rule. Now, you're at the point in your career where you don't have to go out and aggressively find business for yourself. You've been doing this for a long time. You're established. Your reputation in the marketplace is 
such that people are going to find you that are looking for you. But when you were new and you were starting out and you were young and just getting going, what sorts of things did you do to drum up new business, to get yourself going? You're taking a risk, starting a new firm. What, did, what types of things did you, you do to, to get the attention of some prospective clients? First of all, when I started, I started a big firm. And when I started my own practice, I knew when I left the big firm, and that was a lot of, you know, in, in those days, it was like T. Boone Pickens and hostile takeovers. But I knew when I started my firm, I'm not going to T. Boone Pickens isn't calling me up for, you know, some major poison pill takeover deal. So what, you know, so I focused in what I thought would bring in business you know, strategically. Um, I have an accounting background, so I love business. So I thought about startup businesses. One of the things that I did was in those days, maybe before your time, I advertised in the yellow pages. That was a physical book of yellow pages. And I advertised computer law. In those days, computers were, that was a nascent industry. And that was, you know, I was the first person to advertise computer law in the yellow pages. You know, it was just, I was ahead of the curve. My sister, a few years older than I am, she had punch cards in college. I had PCs in college. So that shows you I was right on that cusp. But in any case, I wanted to make sure that the audience that I had, the potential client I had, I could serve that audience. So for example, I did not focus on estate planning. Now I do a lot more of that now because I'm almost 60, right? But in those days, I didn't focus on that because I figured people that are writing wills, who have wealth, who have money, they've already got their team. Problem, here's a general rule. So I focused again on people that would just be looking for their first attorney startups. I have a lot of young clients now, but even then I focused on young clients who were getting into technology, who are entrepreneurs, and that's the market. Yellow pages. I did email in those days. I, you know, I went to the nightclubs and did all the fun stuff to where it was natural to meet people. And, you know, uh, but yeah, you're right. I don't really have to do that now. It does come to me. But in those days, yeah, I mean, I, you have to know who your audience is. And then you have to attack that audience in a meaningful way. Now, you mentioned you went to Duquesne Law School and you also studied accounting, as you just said, as well. And what made you choose law over accounting? You obviously had a love for business. And when you decided to choose law as a profession, did you always intend to do business law because it was so closely related to your passion for business as well? What's sort of your thought process behind how you made those choices? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, accounting, first of all, accounting is a great industry. Accounting is a great industry uh, because it's the chemistry of business, or, or I call it sometimes the organic chemistry of business. So if you want to go into business, you know, accounting is that chemistry. Now, you know, there's a lot of things you can do where you don't need the accounting. I'll tell you, I will tell every client, I will tell, you know, I've told my children, I'll tell everybody I ever meet who's going to college, almost, I'll call it as a favor to them. Take Accounting 101. Accounting 101 is basic bookkeeping. If matriculating in college is a little too tough or, or, you know, too much overhead, you know, just take one of these night courses in bookkeeping. But bookkeeping to me is fundamental. More to your question, you know, law is, uh, I, I just love doing transactions and I love entrepreneurship. So from my end, particularly, the accounting and the technology supported the legal practice more than the legal practice supported the technology and the accounting. So because of my love for the law, philosophy, history, you know, and by the way, I was a major in history with 24 credits of accounting and a political science philosophy double minor. And I went five years undergrad. 
So still that history, political science, philosophy was still my core. I just knew that accounting was so integral to business that that was a support education. And now when you graduated from law school, you worked for a few years for a large law firm first before you went out and started your own practice. Was that always the plan that, hey, I'm getting close to graduating law school. I'm going to get a few years of experience. I want to get some of that under my belt. I'm young. I want to, I want to know what I'm doing. And then I'm going to absolutely go out on my own. Or were you a bit you know, maybe unsure about that. You wanted to practice someplace first. And when you were there, you, the inspiration sort of struck you to, Hey, you know what? I can go out and do this, practice a different type of law, work with different types of clients. How did that play out for you? I I, I don't think it was really mutually exclusive because the firm I went to large firm, you know, you know, that might've been in those days, a 300 person or 200 person firm. And I clerked with them in law school. So I was in law school. So I had the job when I got out of law school already set up because I clerked with them doing law school. You know, that was a large firm. I I can say this very frankly, the firm was good to me. And I don't think that I could have learned what I needed to learn without being at such an excellent firm. The firm was Buchanan Ingersoll in the day, still an excellent firm, but that firm you know, just had such a um, blue blood history that from that firm, I really was able to learn what is the, you know, if you go out on your own, you're doing things, you know, without any part of training or mentoring, you'd really sort of be trying to learn without having a foundation. But, you know, you learn how to, you know, engage a client, you know, how to be careful, how you paper a file, you know, you learn all those basic techniques, the inclination is always there. I think, you know, you just kind of incrementally make decisions as you go. But the mentoring of the firm and the attorneys at the firm, I will tell you, was really instrumental. You know, uh, very important to say things like, are you 99% sure or are you sure? Like, you know, those kind of little things early on are really helpful to an attorney. You know, there's, you know, the difference in some of just those little subtleties. Now, when you started your practice, you decided to call it technology and entrepreneurial ventures law group. So you were sending a very clear signal to the market of what you were going to stand for, what your practice was going to stand for, what types of clients that you wanted to attract. When you started in the early nineties with this, were you on the cutting edge with, with this marketing and this naming convention? And did you find yourself tripping up a little bit in terms of people trying to understand the way you named your law firm or did judges understand that? Because it's probably, it maybe even today, it's a bit different, a bit of a different approach. Did, was that the case in the early nineties? Right. In the early nineties, I'll tell you, I mean, what we had now in those days, um, you know, I had associates all running around and that sort of thing, but in those days, the judges would say, you know, what kind of a name is that? Right. And this was technology and entrepreneurial ventures law group. So it was really kind of way off, right. It was, it was selling, you know, the type of service versus the name of the attorney and keep in mind, traditionally, even in, I think it was the mid eighties or early, might've been the very early eighties before which attorneys were not permitted to advertise. It was truly, quote unquote, a professional service. So the attorney and the name were very integral to the, to the culture. And that started to change as I was coming up the pike. Uh, it was a gentrified profession when I started. And you know now it's a much more competitive environment. But in those days, right, the, the name was avant-garde. 
computer loans of Uncord. In fact, the first bank I went to, I won't mention the, bank, the name, uh, the first bank I went to to open up a bank account, and I wanted to take credit cards. Now, in 1990, when I opened my firm, attorneys didn't take credit cards. Um, and I went to the bank, and the bank, a very renowned bank in Pittsburgh, said, we won't, owe, we won't give you credit cards. And, and I said, why? And they just said, you know, you're a new business and you're an attorney. We don't give credit cards for that. I went to a competitive bank. They gave me a credit card. Now, I've been with that bank for 30 years because they gave me the ability not, not to, um, to take credit cards from my customers, right? Like, if you hired me to do an incorporation, you could pay on a credit card. That was unheard of. So the name, computer law, taking credit cards, those were all new. But now at the time, again, I'm 58. I was 28. So I was, I was, you know, this is this is the way I want to do it, and I'm young, and and uh, you know, I mean, I, I took all those big hits along the way. I don't think I took a day off for at least years. I didn't take a vacation till I, you know, till for ten years. I mean, I really, I really worked it early on. Now today, you're an adjunct professor at your alma mater, Duquesne University. You're teaching some courses in the Master of Leadership program. What are some of the core leadership principles that you're trying to instill into your students through your courses. You're trying to teach leadership through an entrepreneurial perspective. You're an entrepreneur. You have a lot of experience doing this. You've been running a business for a long time now. You've served on boards. You have, you have a lot of uh, experience in this. What are some of the key leadership principles that you really want to get across to, to young students? So at Duquesne University in the, in the master's course, one of the, the, the name of the course I'm teaching now, which, which I developed with the deans, is Developing Leadership Character Through Adversity. So if you put that together, you know, you're talking leadership character because of the adversity, right? Developing leadership character through adversity. We developed that course. It's a unique course. And what that, the, the main principle, as you might expect from that course is you take the hit and you get back up and you put one foot in front of the other. And guess what? You're not the first person to take the hit, to get back up and to keep moving forward. And it's always interesting to me when the students say, I didn't realize all these great people failed. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln, of course, lost the election, election, election. I mean, Napoleon lost battles. I mean, George Washington lost battles. I mean, they ridiculed Jeff Bezos. I mean, Steve Jobs got fired from Apple. I mean, and yet they pick themselves up, they take the hit, and they move on. And we study in the course Oprah, Susan B. Anthony, Napoleon, Donald Trump, President Obama, you know, I mean, we, we study, uh, we study World War II, Nazi Germany, we study the Civil War, we go through all those things and the perspective of the other side of the table. So in any case, that ability to assess objectively and try to, much like loving your business, restrain yourself from the emotion and try to be able to meet out that emotion that helps your cause. You know, the emotion pushes you, but you got to have your head on to know what your strategy is. And in fact, there's a, there's a, you might know it, there's a scene from Braveheart where they're all ready to attack. And um, William Wallace is saying, hold, hold. If you know the scene I'm talking about, I use it to let them know that 
Courage is important because that's going forward when you don't want to. But discipline is equally important because that's when you want to go and must stop. So in the leadership course, we focus on some of those things. And it's, a, it's just as important for entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think it's brilliant to take to teach leadership through adversity. That's a great framework to do it because, you know, you really get to see how many great people, men and women in this country and around the world have failed. Most people have many, many times. We don't see that or think about that. We just think about the successes. So I think that's a valuable lesson for people to, to learn. Absolutely. In your career, you've had a, the opportunity to work on several really large cases, landmark cases, besides all of the transactional work that you have done. One of those cases is Borings v. Google. Can you talk a little bit about that case, maybe just a quick synopsis of, of that case for, for the layperson that maybe doesn't know as much about it? Now, we all know who Google is, and we know a lot about Google, and many people listening to this are going to remember some years ago the privacy issue surrounding Google Street View. And, you know, that's the car that they drive around with the camera on top and they're filming streets. But through the process of that, they're capturing people and, and all sorts of scenarios. And so that was big news a while back. And, and it, I know that you were involved with, with that in this case. Can you talk a little bit about your role? What happened in the case? What was the outcome? So the important part of that case is one of timing. In those days, now we're looking at, I think, so this is 2020, we're looking at give or take 2000, I think it would have been around 2008, maybe, it might have been a little earlier. In those days, now people don't remember it now because you've got the whole new generations coming up with the iPhones. In those days, Google was a search engine. They were the golden boy of search engines. They were a, an American entrepreneurship success story, and really they could do no wrong. So you got to put it in that perspective. So what happened was they drove up a road that said no trespassing, private, no trespassing. And they had one of their street view cameras. that has got the seven or whatever it is, spinning cameras. And they just took pictures along the way. So they trespassed and they're taking pictures all along the way. So, of course, client calls me up and says, can they do that? So the answer to that is they're trespassers. No, they can't do it. So now Google's position was, so we filed the case in the federal court for the Western District of Pennsylvania, and the court dismissed it. So we appealed to the Third Circuit. Third Circuit reversed it, and it went back. But what Google's position was, hey, look, what's the big deal? We took the pictures, mea culpa maybe, and they said, we have a license to be on the land. We're like the milkman, right? The milkman doesn't have like seven cameras, but you know, we're like the milkman, so we have a license to drive up on the road. But they said, what's the big deal? Go on to Google, remove your name, and no harm, no foul. To which we reply, it's not our job to spend our time, our energy, our money to be scouring your database all day long to see if you've ever hit us and put our name in your database. What you're trying to do, Google, is you're trying to fill your database to a point of, because remember now, Street View is new, right? So they don't have a, a database of video yet. So what they're trying to do is as quickly as possible, reduce, like get critical mass into their database. So they're going to get, you know, they want critical mass. They need a point where the average searcher has a positive search experience. To do that, you need critical mass. So they're so our point is, you're trying to get critical mass. Good for you. You're a billion-dollar company. 
you're stepping on our toes to do it. In any case, that was a suit. We appealed it. It went back down to the to the lower court, remanded, and ultimately we settled the case. Well, I think it's the only judgment against Google for intentional trespassing, which was a consent order. We ended up not trying the case, but I, it might be the only order against Google as an intentional trespasser from Street View. So that, that was the result of it. But it is a textbook case. It is reported in textbooks. Now, you know, a lot of this has sort of softened up over the years. These are sort of all, you know, um, cataclysmic sort of changes, but nevertheless, um, still has implications today. And isn't one of the things that came out of that that Google started to blur out the faces of the people in the photographs? Because they never, I think in the beginning, they, they weren't doing that. You could see people in their houses and their underwear or whatever, you know, you could see people. And then I think what they, because they still have street view, but I think they, they're now sort of, I don't know if they're forced to legally or if it's a volunt- voluntary thing, but they, they are blocking out when they're doing the street view, they're blocking out a lot of things, whether it's people or identification, license plates and things like that. Is that part of the practical result of some of this legal work that you were involved in? I, I think the answer is probably yes. I can't attribute necessarily a correlation from the case to to those acts. But I will say that uh, I think you're right. I think, keep in mind in those days, I think Google was in a mad rush to get critical mass and they didn't have time to implement those processes and checks and balances because they didn't have to, they were getting critical mass. They needed, I, I think over time, obviously, is that they've gotten critical mass. They then can dedicate resources to those protections. So I think it's all part of the growth of, and sophistication and, um, and you know, you know, of that industry generally. Now we uh, we're in the pandemic right now. There's it's affecting everything. It affects businesses. How is the pandemic affecting your practice? Is it affecting it at all? Is it changed the way you work? Is it changed the way you practice? If it's not affecting you, is it affecting your clients? Uh, are you still getting the same amount of transactions, volume of business that you were before? Are you still able to go to court? Or in the early days of the pandemic, was was court shut down? But it has it reopened. Is it reopened with masks? What are some of the things that are impacting you and your practice or some of your clients work through this this time i'll tell you that many of my clients aren't really deeply affected i would say as a general rule and it hasn't affected my practice at all from a as busy as ever uh, i'm thankful for i do understand there are a lot of the people that are really hit hard are for example the bars and restaurants in allegheny county for example not so much the other counties but the high overhead businesses are, are tending to get hit much harder because they have to keep feeding the overhead. And I've told clients for many, many years that overhead is the killer of small business. And you want to stay as lean and as efficient as you can. And an important point, as I mentioned earlier, about you know the goal of business is to make money. Some clients, I mean, Betting on the future is all part of the formula because, you know, that's why you do it sort of in a way. But you want to try to always manage that you make money along the way. Now, I know there's early years where you don't make money and you lose money. Jeff Bezos lost money for many years, right? And that's part of the formula. But you have to be really careful that you don't bet too much on the future. The goal is to try to make money along the way, even if you make less and have a really good plan for profitability, but keeping overhead low 
is really important because in an upturn, yeah, you might not be able to grow as fast because the overhead helps you grow faster. But boy, I'll tell you, when there's a downturn, if you don't have overhead, you know, people be running around. And if you don't have overhead, you know, it really has very little impact. The virtuality, low overhead. I love your advice on making money early and making money along the way, because so many people listen to this, if, especially if they're in technology or they're in a startup, you know, there is the tendency to, to have these business models where they're not making money for a long period of time and they're relying on raising capital or they're relying on, on going into debt. And that can be a really tough business model, especially in a scenario like this. And I'm a believer personally in practical businesses. I believe that businesses should be making money. You should try to make money as early as you can. If you have a business model where you have to wait it out, try to find another way to drum up some money, you know, even while you're doing that. There are things that you can do to make money along the way. And there are the examples of, of Amazon and Jeff Bezos, but those are the exception, right? Most most businesses don't can't lose money for 20 years before they make money. <laughs> that just doesn't work. So I love your practicality and you probably bring a lot of that to your practice of, of telling your clients, hey, you know, try to find a way to make money early, keep your overhead low. Hopefully if you have the business where you're able to do that, because then you can, you know, fight out the lean years in the very beginning if 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 that's the way it is. Yeah. Let me let me tell you, you know, in my own practice, now I'm 28, I opened my office, it's 1990. I knew I was going to go broke. Okay, which I did. And I knew I was going to go broke, but I, you know, I had a plan obviously out of that. But I knew I was going to go broke. There was a point in time where I had to make payroll and I put a cash advance on my credit card to develop the cash or I was going to have to sell my car, which I was willing to do. So I hit that bottom, but I worked my way out of that. But that was part of the plan. But on that point, there were choices I could have made to go borrow money from a lender that would secure the assets of my office. I didn't opt for that. I opted for, I use credit cards because of timing. I said, when I go broke, the lender, a secured lender is gonna come after me, but the credit card companies will take longer and it's unsecured. So I can operate through my being broke and it, and it happened that way. And I hit that bottom at a point but you know, you have a path out of it. But you know, you, you, again, you know, being smart and emotions, I mean, that was calculated into my plan. So I had, I, even though they were higher interest, obviously, I had credit cards reserved, you know, and I used them and then I did the balance transfers early on. I mean, I did all that sort of thing. So I, I absolutely understand what, what your audience goes through to start a business and I respect it. And I'm, uh, I'm sensitive to it. Uh, I went through it myself, but you have to have a plan. Greg, as we wrap up here, what parting advice would you like to leave for entrepreneurs, small business owners who are listening to this? You have a lot of experience. You have a lot of wisdom that you can share. You've seen so many things with so many of your clients, so many things that they've gone through. What sorts of things would you advise them on so that they can have the most success in their companies and their businesses? What parting advice would you have for them? What I would say is this, keep your head about you, keep your strategy about you, think about things. If you can find a partner like a marriage, you're better off with 50% of something that makes it. You got to be careful because partnerships also, you know, have their own risks. But, you know, a small group of people, assuming they're honorable and, you know, you, you like them and you trust them, 
they can do a lot. Even though you're going to have a smaller part of the pie, sometimes that pie is a lot bigger because you have people, you know, like pistons, you're all pulling in the same way and, and it, you know, it tends to be, allow you to be more successful. And just remember one thing, the best contract in the world with bad people, you have misery. The worst contract, written contract in the world with good people, and you'll work through it. So it still reduces down to, if you're working with people, really try to tell, you know, if you can test them, but find good people and try to create those relationships that help you succeed together. Even though it's a smaller, maybe part for you, it's, it's a bigger part. I love hearing you talk about partnerships because, you know, especially coming from an attorney, because so many people are sometimes scared of partnerships. I myself am a big fan and proponent of partnerships for the same reason that you just said that I think two people together, three people together can do things that one person can't do. And some, so many people are scared of it. So many people are afraid of a partnership agreement. And it's great to hear from you as an attorney who's probably dealt with maybe partners that haven't always seen eye to eye. You've seen some of those issues, but you've also seen people come together, form a contract, form an agreement and have success in their company. So I love hearing that from you as an attorney that, that you do see the power in partnerships because any large company out there had more than one person involved, right? There's no, there's usually a lot of times there's a duo, you know, Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak. And so people don't always think that. And I think sometimes there's a, a lot of young entrepreneurs, especially have the mentality of they want the whole pie but sometimes the pie is really small and you can make the pie bigger if you're willing to work with other people and build relationships. And so I love hearing you talk about that and promote that as, as a, as a way for people to have success, you know, with their companies. Have a good agreement, still form an LLC, but the relationships, absolutely. Greg, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Darren, my pleasure. Thank you. Honored to be here. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com, thestartupshop.net, that shop spelled S-H-O-P-P-E, or at 412-336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Take care.